Hi, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112 BK. Coming up, there are more people running for public advocate than there are women named Lauren on The Bachelor. Two of our favorite journalists tell us who's who and exactly what it is that the public advocate does. Maybe they shouldn't be in the line of succession, that it becomes too political a job when you're supposed to be the sort of bully pulpit ombudsman for the city to be saying, am I really doing what's best for the city or just shoring up my chances of being mayor next? And then what happens when you enter foster care as a full-fledged teenager? We'll hear from a taco truck chef who successfully navigated the system. Personally, my challenge was uh, living with the stigma of being in foster care. Um, how do I tell my friends? How do I tell my family back home? If you're over 18 and have a pulse, New York's hottest race is the special election for public advocate. The election, which fills the seat vacated by now New York Attorney General Tish James, is being held on February 26th. So who are these candidates, what are their platforms, and why should we care? I know I need help figuring out who to vote for, so we've invited two people in the know to help us become educated voters. As executive editor of City Limits, our friend Jarrett Murphy is as up on local politics as anyone. Great to see you, Jarrett. Thanks for Thanks being for on the show. Me. And Brian Vines is not only Brick TV's managing editor and a frequent guest host in this studio, but just last week he co-moderated a public advocates debate, and he'll tell us why it was less than a roaring success. Welcome, Brian. Thanks for having me. Let's start with what the public advocate does and why we should care about this role. Well, public advocate is one of New York City's three citywide officials, the mayor and the comptroller of the others. Uh, it's technically the number two official. If the mayor dies or gets arrested or something, <laughs> public advocate takes over for a little while. But the main purpose of the job is to be kind of a check on the mayor's power. New York has what's called a strong mayor system. The mayor has a tremendous amount of power, city council very little. So the public advocate is there to collect complaints, investigate stuff, basically keep tabs on the mayor, has the ability to put legislation into the city council, and under Tish James, the most recent one, went to court a lot to try to challenge the city to do or not do certain things. So it's one of those offices that really takes the stamp of the person who wins it in terms of priorities, doesn't have a huge budget, not yeah. a huge staff, but some potential to make a difference as some past public advocates have. And Brian, it's really a springboard in some cases to other offices. Well, it was for our current mayor, who of course was the only public uh, advocate to go on to become the mayor. So there's definitely an eye toward larger government. This is sort of an audition. And like Jared said, they're next in the line of succession. And there was some talk among some electeds that I talked to about maybe modifying that. We know the charter's coming up, so there's going to be some opportunity to rewrite or codify some of the things that the public advocate's office is responsible for. And some people think maybe they shouldn't be in the line of succession, that it becomes too political a job when you're supposed to be the sort of bully pulpit ombudsman for the city to be saying, am I really doing what's best for the city or just shoring up my chances of being mayor next? And that's not the only complaint about the position. Some people actually want it abolished entirely. Is that right, Jarrett? That's right. That's been true virtually since the day it was formed. It dates yeah. back to 1993. That was the first election where they had a public advocate on the ballot. Mark Green was the first one. Right. And yeah, people have been against it from the beginning, that it's a waste of money, it's a waste of time, it's just a stepping stone. And I think that, you know, if you're a person who 
uh, believes in a strong mayor system and believes the city council's got its covered, doesn't really like the back and forth of politics, you might say that. I think, you know, public advocates in the past have highlighted important issues. Certainly during the Giuliani administration, Mark Green really was maybe the focal point of the opposition to mm-hmm. that mayor. You know, Betsy Gottbaum raised some interesting questions about Mayor Bloomberg on education reform, on ACS. De Blasio put out a lot of housing stuff, did some stuff on guns. And Letitia James, you know, in terms of the worst landlords list and some of her lawsuits, has prosecuted some interesting, you know, policy issues. And what's the ACS? Uh, the Administration for Children's Services, the child welfare, foster care, that kind of stuff. Great. But I think where the real criticism can come was, just like Jared said before, it really is up to whoever's sitting in that seat to define what it is that that office is going to do. Like Tish James had more bills that she introduced into the city council and co-sponsored legislation that she introduced, as well as lawsuits that she was bringing against, in some cases, the city than Bill de Blasio did in three years in the office she did in her short time there. Right. I mean, the actual job description is responsible for receiving and investigating complaints concerning city services and other administrative actions of city agencies. But it does sort of seem that it can be molded into whatever people and like want. Everybody would say, yeah, sign me up. That's why you had 25 people trying to get the job. Yeah. So right. let's talk about that. How many people today are running for public advocate? So the ballot that we'll see on February 26th will have 17 names, but only 16 of those are active. One, Latrice Walker, assembly member from Brooklyn, pulled out. So 16 names. I believe that is the most crowded field we've ever had for a citywide office in in this modern New York City history. And you have to look at that number when, like, the last time the borough president's job was open in Brooklyn, how there was such a dearth of people who were ready to throw their hat in the ring, but all of a sudden we had multiple, like, dozen wanting to run for a public advocate. And I think a part of that is to become vested in the city's pension, an elected official has to spend 10 years on the job. Mm. City council gives you mm. two four-year terms, and Bloomberg is not here to save the city again and <laughs> re-up for a third. So like, maybe I'm a little cynical. So cynical, so so cynical. cynical Five Ryan. minutes into my life in New York City <laughs> and listening to politics. But there, there are some people who would say, hey, I could do this, and it keeps my name out there should I want to be the mayor or any other public office, because four years, two terms, uh, that's eight years later, and then you're just going to trade in all that capital to go work internally at the DOE or something when you might have an aspiration to be any other name above the door kind of thing. So public advocacy. Also, this is a very special, special election because it's a special election. There's no party primary. So you have most people in this race are Democrats. Normally, they'd be winnowed out the primary process. There's no primaries for a special election. So everybody has to pick up their own kind of kooky um, party name, like fix the MTA or it's time, let's go. Well, funny funny you mention that, guys, because that segues nicely into a little game we would like to play with you. This game is called Match the Candidate to the their slogan. All right. So I'm already embarrassed. <laughs> so you guys can just chime in. You know, you're on the same team. All right. Um, okay, whose slogan start. is the people's voice? Oh, I know the 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 lawyer guy. He's like the people's lawyer. The um, Jared Rich. Rich. This is actually Jumani Williams. Oh, wow. what do you call the him? people's voice? The people's voice. The people's wow. voice. Okay. 
that's what they all say. At, right. Like, Is everyone to the people's a voice? person at the debate that I co-moderated for the folks at Vita, they were all the people's voice. Yes. <laughs> yeah, nobody doesn't no want to be the people's voice, No one's going to say they're right? not. Yeah. Well, okay, speaking of that, there are two people who actually have very similar slogans. So tell me, tell me whose slogans these are. Fix the MTA and fix MTA and NYCHA now. I know Melissa Mark is, is fixed the MTA. That's yes. correct, yes. Fix MTA and NYCHA and now. NYCHA now. Uh, I know Tony, Tony Herbert's a big NYCHA person, but he wouldn't put in... I don't know, is that Michael okay, Blake? That's yeah. Michael Zumbluskis. Oh, okay. Okay, okay. all right. All right. Um, what about United for Immigrants? Uh, it wouldn't be... Be Rafael Espinal? No. That's racist because you're just. <laughs> 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 I apologize. He's representing Bushwick and all those folks, but I know it's not him, but uh, I don't know. I'm, um, I'm not sure how to pronounce this person's first name. Idanis Rodriguez? Oh. Idanis? Right. Yeah. 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 Um, Manhattan. Oh, right. yeah. He's been arrested. He's in, in the cause. Got it. For, okay. for yeah. protesting some not savory policies regarding the treatment Great. of immigrants. Great. Thank you for clarifying that. On the right, that side, arrest. The right yes. side of the arrest. arrest. Yes. Um, what about Liv Moss? That would be Espinal. He made the nightmare position. That's actually Taco Ooh. Bell. <laughs> so we just threw that one in there. I don't even thought my vote. Um, here are two, uh, equality for all and taste the rainbow. One of these is a slogan for public advocate and one of them is for Skittles. Taste the rainbow. Okay, and equality for all is? Danny O'Donnell. Danny O'Donnell, very good. You guys, you passed with flying no, colors. I was trash. <laughs> um, I want to close out, Brian, by asking you about, yeah. you hosted, a, you co-moderated a, a debate I recently. Did. And it was a bit of a Michigan, so tell Listen, us what happened. Vita is the Vanguard Independent Democrats Association, or it's it's a very storied and phenomenal Democratic club in central Brooklyn. Yeah, Democratic Association. They have a fantastic history of really being relevant and pushing and being transformative, especially for folks of color and in central Brooklyn. And they hosted a debate and there were 24 folks who said they would come through they tried to whittle it through all the way until the last moment with the trees dropping out and people not having the right funds, people who didn't make it to the ballot. So I think there were about 18 folks who were confirmed. Eight candidates came through. And I can say the first four who were in the House and absolutely there, secure before the time, were Brooklynites. They were Jumani, Rafael, Rafael, I have it written down, Michael Blake. They were all there. And eight people actually showed up. There were about 1,100 people reserved to be in the auditorium at Boys and Girls High School right on Fulton. And it happened to be the 31st, which was a 16-degree day, the oh, coldest yeah. day of the year. That's not as cute. Yet. Nobody's leaving their house. That was on the Even thermometer. Candidates. Right? Yeah. So the four people were there, and then the four others trickled in because there are forums all over the city. So how do you prepare for a debate with even... 18 people. So we had a round robin round where there were no answers. You had to stand in the affirmative or sit down if you were negative <laughs> on questions ranging from, have you taken money from the real estate lobby? Uh, just do you support mayoral control? Like a bunch of different, just so people know who's in the room. And then we group them together according to their certain views or perspectives on the MTA and uh, 
just other issues. This isn't in a the debate. City. This is just sorting by like shapes and colors. It really was, but I think it was it was instructive for the folks who did show up because you did get answers without a lot of politicking. Because my co-moderator, Esmeralda Simmons of the Center for Law and Social Justice at Meg Rivers, was a very tough taskmaster and didn't give AF and kept people on their P's and Q's. <laughs> so it was interesting, but it was, it. I, I don't understand how it could have been any better, but it certainly could have been worse, but it, it's a lot. It can always be worse. And it matters. There you go. It does matter, it's an and it's a really matters. challenging race because, look, it's hard to wade through this field of candidates. So yeah. maybe we can close um, Jarrett and then Brian just by telling us maybe who the three most serious candidates in your opinion are so that people can maybe use that as a jumping off point to do a little more research. Oh, that's tough. Well, I won't say that. I'd say go to citylimits.org. We have a voter's guide. You can look for yourself. There are a lot of people with serious ideas. Yeah. Um, although I now know if I ever run, my party name will be given AF. <laughs> I always, I really do. Very good. Well, if you need a running mate, Esmeralda might be inclined <laughs> to. But I say what Jared said. His is one of my daily clicks, so City Limits always makes me seem smarter than I am. But I can tell you in the room, and this is no way an endorsement, but Jumani seemed to really connect with the folks in the room. It was very impressive. Someone who was uh, a bit of a surprise to me, but I thought came out very forceful, although she was late, was the former journalist, investigative journalist. Nomiki Konst was impressive. Pay people more. Well, yeah, we're never going to lose with paying <laughs> yeah, people right? more. But those two were two to watch. Jumani, as you might expect, but she was one of the dark horses. And I think someone to watch in future is Ben Yi. He uh, came out of the Obama campaign and said he declined a job in the administration later. He's the president of the New York, uh, the in Manhattan, Manhattan the Democratic. Democrats. Yeah, yeah, very smart guy. So he he's one to watch. Like if they're like the other people will fight, but. He might have a future, I think. Okay. Well, the election is February 26th. Go vote. Um, Jarrett, Brian, thank you so much for joining us to talk about the public advocate race. Thank you. The number of kids in New York City foster care has dropped dramatically in the last two decades, from 45,000 to 9,000. It's a welcome development, but there are some times, of course, when removing a child from his or her family is unavoidable. That was the case for our next guest, who entered the foster care system at 16. What happens to children who are placed in foster care as older teenagers, and what is it like to age out of the system with no familial support to fall back on? Here to talk about this is Zinusile Kumbula, a.k.a. Chef Z, foster care alumnus and chef owner of New York's first African taco pop-up. Chef Z, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Would you tell me just a little bit about how you ended up in the foster care system? Um, I moved here in about 2009 to live with my mom and my uh, stepdad. Mm -hmm. Where did you move from? I moved from Zimbabwe. Okay. Yeah, so I lived with them for a couple of months and then due to a series of like unfortunate events that included domestic violence, child abuse, I ended up in the foster care system. And what did that look like for you? Were you placed in a individual foster home? Were you in a group home? I started off in a group home and then I transferred over to about another two foster homes. Two foster homes. Yeah. And I think when most people think about the foster care system, they think of like children, like young kids. Um, but you entered the system when you were 16. Can you tell me a little bit about what that was like? 
for myself in particular, it was challenging simply because I had been raised all my life in a different country, living my life differently, and we had different ways of life. And then you move here, you're taken away or you cannot live with your family, and you end up being placed in a home where there's other children that come from different backgrounds as well. So it's very difficult to find yourself within but while you're still without, because you feel like an outsider and then you have these people around you who are supposed to be your family and they're not really your family. Mm. Tell me a little bit about some of the particular challenges that might face children who are immigrants to this country, um, as you mentioned, who were raised in different cultural contexts and now they find themselves in an American family. Talk to me about some of those obstacles. Uh, For me, for the most part, it would probably be the cultural shock. Um, The way people are spoken to here is different from the way that people are spoken to back home. And then personally, my challenge was uh, living with the stigma of being in foster care. Um, How do I tell my friends? How do I tell my family back home? We don't even have foster care back home. So how do you even start to begin to explain to someone else that you're in foster care if they don't even know what it is? Right. My my family is Chinese, and I know that the idea of foster care is very alien because... Uh If somebody can't take care of their kid, there's always family around who raised that child. Is it similar in Zimbabwe, or or was that part of the stigma that you're talking about coming up against? Absolutely. It's definitely that because, uh, I mean, we're all human and life happens in this, like, different shapes. So there are situations back home where parents may not be able to be there for their children, so they end up going to an aunt's house or some grandma's house. You'll always have a home. I'm curious about as well, you know, at 16, you're almost an adult, you know, you're forging your own identity. What is it like at that age then to find yourself um, in the system and perhaps having to live with a family who has different different expectations? For the most part, it was uh, a matter of me standing up for myself and realizing that um, at that time, I'm the only person that I have. So whether it was within a foster home or back in the same house with my mom and my um, former step, my ex-stepdad, I always tried to advocate for myself and even leaving um, the the home with my mom and my stepdad, I ended up at some point opting to get into foster care then go back to a negative situation. So I've always tried to do what is best for myself at the best level that I can. I think that's how I I managed to, like, just go through it while I was still a youth. And tell me about how you came to food. I started um, cooking with my grandma while I was young. I had asthma growing up, so I couldn't be very active. So while the other kids were playing outside, I was inside with my grandma cooking. Um, I developed a love from cooking then, and then once I moved here, once in a while I'd cook in different foster homes or the group home, And people were very receptive to the food. And I'm like, okay, you guys like the food. It's okay. I just like the food. And then I went through, like, um, a quarter-life crisis where I was like, what am I going to do with my life? That's normal, Um, by the way, just so you know. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. So I ended up um, dropping out of an accounting program at Pace University. And um, I picked up some pots and some pans. I started catering at different events. 
and we're here now making tacos. And you got a scholarship to attend culinary yes, school. Yes, I did. So it wasn't really culinary school. The scholarship was for hospitality management. So thanks to CCAP, I've graduated with um, a diploma in hospitality management. The cooking is really something I've taught myself through the tools of YouTube and Google. Can't underestimate them. <laughs> and the power of your grandmother. Tell me something Absolutely. that you learned to cook from her chicken, a roasted chicken. She'd take it and stuff it with different veggies. So the aromas of the veggies would sink into the meat and then the juices of the meat would cook the vegetables. So you'd eat both and kind of taste the same thing while all of it is completely different. You'd pick up a carrot and it kind of tastes like chicken. And if you bite into the chicken the right way, you'll taste some carrots too. And was your grandmother from Zimbabwe? My grandma was from Zimbabwe, yes. What is her cuisine like? What is, if I go to Zimbabwe, what type of food am I eating? So you'd probably eat what we call ischwala. It is um, a cornmeal dish, very similar to grits and polenta, but much better. We eat it with um, stewed kale or stewed collard greens and a little bit of meat. When was the first time that you had a taco? Oh my goodness. Uh, <laughs> You're like, it was a crisp Tuesday morning. <laughs> I think I probably had my first taco. I've been here nine years, I'd say maybe six or seven years ago. And what did you think? They were interesting. They were interesting. It was this um, handheld little thing with meat and tomatoes and onions. For me, it kind of reminded me of home because every time we cook out, we'll eat um, bride meat, which is like barbecued meat, but much better, with the ischwala and um, salsas like tomatoes, onions, cucumbers. So that those flavors alone reminded me of back home and I'm like oh wow it's actually the same thing because tortillas are made out of cornmeal so it's essentially the same same meal so um, this is where the taco africana aspect came from where I could tell people we eat food from the same sources maybe a little bit differently but it's really all the same food. Got it. So this is not necessarily like um, fusion, you know, like a, a lychee teeny at your favorite like Asian fusion restaurant. This is actually an homage to the ways in which Mexican cuisine and African cuisine are, are quite similar in some ways. Absolutely. And I don't just stick it to Mexico and Africa. There's some tacos that I've done uh, with uh, per th th this taco actually in particular. The sauce on the shrimp is popular in South Africa, but it originated in Portugal. It's called peri-peri. Sure. So this is uh, more of like an African base, but with flavors from all over the world. So this is a peri-peri shrimp. Yes. And there's a cauliflower as well, yes? Absolutely. Can you tell me about that one? So the cauliflower has been steamed and then sauteed in the same sauces and spices as the shrimp. So you'd bite into it and get the same flavors you'd get, but without eating the shrimp. And so tell us about the taco truck. Where can we find it? Um, how do we eat your delicious food? Taco truck was launched um, last November. We'd been in business for about two months and then it got it got cold really really cold outside and um, my new business I'm still learning that I just saw the numbers declining and it didn't make sense for me to stay open throughout the winter so what we've done we've closed the truck for the winter to focus more on indoor events and then once spring comes we're also um, retouching up the truck and getting a bigger one to launch again so we'll have uh, 
an app and a website where people would easily find us. And, you know, you, you get these really cool food trucks of mobile food units that travel all across the city and you don't know where to find them sometimes. So the um, app that we're working with will have um, a GPS locator to tell pe- um, people where we are. Very cool. And yeah. you give a portion of your proceeds to people in foster care, to foster care programs? Absolutely. There's um, three different organizations I give back to. Uh, for now, it's Graham Wyndham. Uh, obviously, in foster care um, agency, they helped me go to school and they helped me with my life. The second one is called Impact Network. It helps children in Zambia get like educational materials and gives them a little bit of counseling and mentorship through their careers. And then the last one is Trevor Noah Foundation. Um, I saw his show recently on Netflix and it inspired a movement within me. I made a taco after him completely and proceeds from that taco goes back to the Trevor Noah Foundation. What is the Trevor Noah taco? Um, It's called the Niga. It is um, a plantain tortilla with watermelon butter, uh, fried jollof chicken, and uh, fried crispy kale. Ooh, I've never heard of watermelon butter, but I want to try it. Has Trevor Noah had the taco? Not yet. Okay, Trevor Noah, if you're out there, go find this taco, eat it, tweet about it. Absolutely. Um, Chef C, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for having me. That's the show for today. Please join us next time when we'll talk to a mother who's written a book about how raising a trans child changed her life. Woman to BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 